Let us hear God's word from Romans 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Now, as we uh, begin here today, I want us to, to ponder this question here briefly, and that is, what is our job as a Christian? Now, there are actually several answers to that question, but one of them is given to us here in these opening words of Paul and Romans. One of our primary jobs as Christians is to take the gospel of God based in the Old, Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, and proclaim it to others. And so with this briefly in mind, uh, we start this uh, book here of Romans today. Uh, last time, of course, we did a, uh, an overview of some of the background and, and broad views here and such in regard to this vital book in Scripture. And God used Paul to help unite the believers in Rome with his gospel manifesto, we might call it. Paul wrote the letter, most likely, when he was in Corinth on his third missionary journey during the winter months of 56 and 57 AD. Though Paul had never been to Rome, and there was no clear evidence at this point that an apostle had come to Rome, God established churches there anyway. And this likely is because people came to Jerusalem for Pentecost and uh, when the Spirit was poured out, we know, it says there in Acts 2, there were people from Rome. And so they were some of the 3,000 that were converted, and they brought the gospel back to Rome. And uh, surely there were others over time that came with the gospel, uh, but it likely started in this way. So, as Paul begins his letter um, and this opening section, let's... Uh, briefly look at the outline here that I've given here for you and uh, just uh, call your attention to a few things briefly with some, if you will, broader points as we get started here today. As you see in the first uh, two outlines, uh, the first section is verses 1 to 17 and uh, nobody really disputes that. Where there does have a little bit of debate is um, should we see the first part of verse 16 as uh, an earlier subsection or going with verse 17 and so your third outline um, uh, shows you that <clears throat> but the next two uh, separates verse 16 completely um, now on the back side you'll see then this uh, structural analysis remember this is from my seminary professor Dr. Knox Chamblin and uh, notice how he uh, connects chapter 1 verses 1 to 7 with chapter 16. You see the line and the words there, succinct statement of the gospel and greetings. And then the next section, verses 8 to 15, corresponds to the latter half of chapter 15. 
and uh, Paul's missionary plan. So very deliberately connected here um, in what uh, Paul is saying. So uh, with this in mind, let's look here again at chapter 1 then. And uh, notice in verse 1 it mentions the gospel. In verse 2 it mentions the Old Testament. So let's turn here then to chapter 16. And notice how it ends. In chapter 16, verses 25 to 27... Notice in verse 25, he mentions the gospel, right? To him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. And then he makes reference to the Old Testament. According to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations and so forth. So again, Paul is very deliberate in how he pieces all this together. So he starts and ends the letter by referencing the gospel and referencing the Old Testament and the fulfillment of the promises in the Old Covenant. And so um, that's the first, if you will, uh, big point here, this broader point to make. Uh, the second one now uh, has to do with verses 1 to 7 uh, and, and a couple things here in this way. This is the longest opening that Paul uses for any of his letters, seven verses here. And uh, this is longer from what we understand from historical evidence. This is the longest of any letter that's been found anywhere, even outside of the scriptures. And so Paul's very unique in making it so long. Um, furthermore, the book of Romans is the longest of all of Paul's letters. First uh, Corinthians is not as long as Romans, even though it's the same uh, number of chapters. Uh, and in fact, then when you compare this to letters outside of the Bible, it is much longer than, than any of these. And so this is likely due to the fact that Paul had not been there before, uh, so he's saying a few extra things, and of course because of the importance of what he's talking about. Um, now, in, in saying that, Paul does still follow a typical format of a first century letter. When we write a letter, we tend to say, dear so-and-so, right, the recipient, who's going to receive it, and then we sign our name at the end. Uh, well, it was the opposite in the first century. The person who wrote the letter said his name first, and then the recipient is given uh, next, and then there would be a word of greetings. And sometimes they would add some other things. So uh, we see this here, right, verse 1, Paul says his name. Then in verse 7, here are the recipients to all in Rome. And then he gives his greetings, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So it's, it's uh, very much like a first century letter, but with very much a Christian flavor, if you will, here on Paul's part. Uh, let's turn a moment to Acts chapter 23. And uh, you recall when uh, I preached through this here a little bit ago, that uh, we have this letter. And this is a very typical first century letter. And much shorter, of course, than the book of Romans. Uh, but we see here this pattern. If you look at chapter 23 of Acts and verse 25, uh, you see about the letter. And then in verse 26, here's who wrote it. Claudius Lysias, and then the recipient, to the most excellent governor Felix, and then greetings. Now, many letters would have more than this, but this is the typical uh, introduction, you might say. And, uh, and so on. Now, this letter is only about 80 words in length. There are a couple words that are debated. Uh, most letters of the first century were 150 to 250 words in length. So two or three times the length of this letter here. Anyone venture a guess how long the book of Romans is? 
It's about 7,000 words. It is so out of the ordinary for first century letters. And even to some degree here in the scriptures. Um, And so again, it's highlighting its significance. All right, now one last thing as we come here to... uh, Uh, back to Romans in this opening section, is that uh, these seven verses do fit together very specifically. In fact, the central part are verses three and four. Um, I've said on other occasions, sometimes the first thing is the most important. Sometimes the last thing in a section is most important. Sometimes it's in the middle. Well, here it's in the middle. Um, Verses three and four give us this summary of the person of Christ. And we'll say more about it, uh, Lord willing, next week. Um, In fact, there are 93 words here in verses 1 to 7. And right in the middle are the words, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, in the New King James translation, they have moved where that is. If you have another translation, maybe not. It actually, excuse me, in the Greek is at the end of verse 4. But it's right in the middle. And so the most important idea, not only in the introduction, but the whole of the letter is Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel message, the promises being fulfilled through Christ so that we can be reconciled to God. And so very deliberately arranged uh, here by Paul. All right, so a few broader thoughts here as we get started. Let's now jump in uh, to verse 1 and look specifically at what Paul says. So again, verse 1 says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. All right, obviously uh, we see Paul here first. And again, since we've spent so much time talking about Paul over the years, especially in our study of Acts, I'm not going to say more about it here. But of course, remember, he was a non-Christian persecuting Christians. But God then came to him on the Damascus Road and converted him. And so forth. So, uh, Paul here then says three things about himself. Okay? And yes, uh, letters in the first century often did that. We don't see that in Acts 23, but we do see it here. And so, first, he calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ, or yours might say Christ Jesus there. Um, and it's literally the word for slave. Paul is saying, I am a slave of Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, we see that language. For example, you see it with Moses and Joshua and David, as well as others. And so Paul here is identifying with them in this way. And simply it means, Jesus owns me. I belong to him. I am a slave of Christ. And so Paul here must and is obeying Jesus. All that Paul says, all that Paul does is because he is submitting to Jesus. There's an unwavering loyalty, an undisputed obedience, total allegiance, because Jesus is Paul's Lord and Master. So so note this relationship, note the humility of Paul here as well. Now, of course, we live in a culture today and in a country today where slavery has been a very bad thing. And in our culture, we, we hear all these things of how terrible slavery is. And you can understand why. But um, not all aspects of slavery are bad, especially when we think of our slavery to God. In fact, 
the best thing for us to be is a slave of God, a slave of Jesus Christ. He owns us, and we serve him, and that's a good thing. In fact, it's the best thing that we could have. Um, and so we, we, we need to make some careful distinctions here, but this is what Paul is emphasizing. He is owned by Christ and is obeying him. All right, now I mentioned just a moment ago that your translation may say a slave of Jesus Christ. Yours may say a slave of Christ Jesus. And that's because there are some differences in the manuscripts as to which it is. So, uh, in fact, there's a, a B rating. Remember, I've talked about some of the ratings before, which means we're not totally sure which one Paul said originally. Um, now, Jesus Christ is used 73 times in the Bible, 25 by Paul. It's about a third of them. Christ Jesus is used 87 times in the New Testament and 80 of them by Paul. So almost all of them. So probably he said Christ Jesus. Now, on one hand, you might think, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference for Paul is when he says Jesus Christ, he is emphasizing the humanity of Christ. When he says Christ Jesus, he is emphasizing the office and function of, of Jesus, the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. And so he's focusing more on his office, on his work, you might say. And as you look at verses 3 and 4, clearly that's his emphasis. Um, so there's not that much difference, but there is a difference in Paul's mind on why he says it one way or the other. Um, but whatever the case, right? he's saying, I am a slave of my Messiah. All right, now secondly, Paul says that he is called to be an apostle. Now, literally, the word for called is an adjective. So if we were going to say a good book or a tall tree or something like that, right? it's just an adjective. He is a called apostle. Okay? And so Paul was called by Jesus to be one of his apostles. He was chosen by Christ and then sent by Christ. And so he was sent, as the next part says, right, with the gospel message. Now, <clears throat> apostles in the New Testament were very specifically chosen. Right? Jesus, of course, picked the 12. And uh, um, then uh, we have uh, uh, Judas dying, of course, and Matthias being replaced, uh, or replacing him, I should say. Um, but only those who had seen the risen Christ could be an apostle. And Paul was one of those because he saw the risen Christ on the Damascus road. But as you put all these things together, notice that Paul is not claiming to be an apostle just because he wanted to be. He didn't feel God's call in his life or something, you know, kind of random. No, Jesus specifically came and called him, appointed him to be an apostle. And so he is set apart by Christ. And so because of that, right, Paul's a slave. He's obeying his master. We should listen to what Paul says. Paul was called specifically by Jesus, so we need to listen to what Paul says. And Paul, of course, was sent to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. We see there in verse 16. All right, now thirdly, he says, separated to the gospel of God. Um, the emphasis here is this is something that's been done in the past, but now there's a continuing effect. And so having been separated, he was set apart at some point before, but he's continuing to be set apart 
uh, here for the gospel. And so clearly Paul then is referring to his conversion and his commissioning. So let's turn here just briefly uh, back to Acts chapter 9. And of course here in chapter 9, this is where Paul was heading to Damascus to arrest Christians and maybe even put them in jail or uh, kill them uh, for believing in Jesus. But Jesus encounters Paul and uh, Paul is converted. But remember, he is blinded for a few days and he has to go into Damascus. And in verse 10, we see that Jesus comes to this man, Ananias, and says, hey, go get Paul. And he's like, why? He's coming to arrest us, right? And Jesus says, no, I've, I've saved him, basically. And if you pick up then in verse 15, note, this is what Ananias is to say to Paul. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And so... Here is when Paul was set apart. Let's turn also to chapter 26 here a moment. You might remember here in Acts that Paul makes reference to his conversion and commissioning a few different times. And this is the time he does so when he was before King Agrippa. Remember, he was arrested in Caesarea, was there for a couple years. And so when he was speaking to the king, uh, this is what he said. He's re- reviewing it. And if we start in verse 15 here in chapter 26, note these words. Paul speaking. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things that I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. All right. So again, this is what Paul is referring to when he says, having been separated for the gospel of God. This is, this is when it happened and so forth. Now, if we date things accurately here, and of course there's some questions, this would be about 23 years after Paul was set apart that he writes the book of Romans. And so this commissioning has not changed for him. Now, as you come back to Romans 1, uh, notice it says here, separated to the gospel of God. Your translation may say for the gospel of God or something like that. Uh, This is his purpose. This is his job. This is the task that has been given to Paul. Paul must take the message of God's good news to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Now, note a a few other things here. First of all, notice that the gospel comes from God the Father. This wasn't Jesus' idea, and he had to twist the Father's arm to accept us. The, The gospel came from the Father initially. The Father sent Jesus with the message of good news. And remember, of course, in the gospels, the language was, the kingdom of heaven has come. Uh, The the promises of the old covenant are fulfilled in Christ. Well, now here Paul is is using the terminology of gospel, but it's it's the same idea. Paul now is sent with the message that Christ has come to fulfill these things. And so the gospel is from the Father ultimately, comes through Christ, and now Paul is to take the message. Now, Paul, you recall, was a former Pharisee. 
And he was set apart for religious things. But now he is separated under the task of serving Christ by spreading the good news. And so, you know, it's no surprise that Paul mentions the gospel here in verse 1. This is such an important thing for him. This was his job that God gave to him. In fact, the word gospel is used plus the verb to preach the gospel. It's used four times here just in this opening section. You see it here and then in verse 9 and verses 15 and 16. He, does, he uses these words 12 times in the book. And uh, so it's, it's obviously very important to him. All right, now let me say a word briefly here about the word gospel itself. We often hear people say the gospel means good news. And they're right. It's actually a combination of two words. The word for gospel in the Greek is a combination of the word for well. Right? Think of the adverb. Okay? I am doing well. Uh, and then the word uh, for announce or proclaim or message. And so hence, good news, or maybe a little more accurately, we would say a message that all is well. The gospel is a message that all is well. We're sinners. We deserve judgment. But the Messiah has come. The promises are fulfilled. Christ has obeyed in our place. He has taken the punishment that we deserve. Our salvation is secured and God's wrath is turned aside. That's good news. All is well. Not because of anything we have done, but because what God has done through Christ. And so, again, in the Gospels, the language of the kingdom of God has come is, is the emphasis. But here now in Romans, Paul's saying the gospel message has come through Christ. And then, as we'll see in verses 16 and 17, right, God's righteousness has been revealed. And so that's another key word that he uses here. And so the good news is not... Hey, well, I can join in with other people who believe similar things and we do all these religious things and I feel good about myself. That's not the good news. The good news is Jesus did all the religious things for me because I can't. I can't do it perfectly. And then, of course, Jesus took the punishment I deserve for not obeying my God fully and completely. And so God's wrath is turned aside. All truly is well for the people of God. And so this is the message that was given to Paul. And as slave of Christ, being called and appointed by Christ, he is sent with this message. So, all right, we've been spending all this time here talking about Paul. What about us? Well, on the one hand, we are completely different from Paul. Paul's an apostle. And we are not apostles. On the other hand... We are like Paul in these ways. In the Bible, we see not only is Moses a slave of God or Paul a slave of Christ or David or something like that, but we see the language that we are all slaves of God. We're going to see in chapter 6, Paul used that language, that we are now no longer slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness. We are slaves to God, every believer and so every one of us is owned by God, by Christ. We have been bought with the blood of Jesus. The payment to, 
to make us his was his blood. And so he is our master. We are to serve him. And so it's not just the important people like Paul and Moses and so on, but, but we too have been bought and are slaves to our God. And so, like Paul then, let us cease serving ourselves. Let us cease trying to become slaves of things here on earth and obeying earthly masters only. And let's give ourselves to Christ completely. Not just a little bit, not just once a week or in some ways, but complete service to Christ, our Lord and our Master. He is our Savior, yes, but he's also our Master. And so we must, we must serve him. And so what is the job of the Christian? Well, we've got to obey our master, who is Jesus. Now, secondly, um, this idea of being called. Paul was called, right, on the Damascus Road. He fell down, he was blind for a few days, and, and then he is given this commission to, uh, to serve Christ in this way. Well, those things haven't happened to us. And yet, at the same time, God has come to us in our sin, in our rebellion, and he has called us to himself. We call this the effectual call. We too have been separated to obey our Lord. We too have been sent with the message. And so, okay, we're not an apostle, but we do have the same kind of job, just to a lesser degree. As I was saying a little bit ago, hey, there were only so many apostles, 12 initially, and Matthias replaced Judas. Paul was also an apostle, and some people will include James in this list. So 13 or 14 apostles, that's it. Now, there were some who were sent by apostles. They were delegated with certain authorities, like Timothy and Titus. But that's all. Once John the apostle died, we have had no more apostles in the history of the world. But in a lesser sense, not, if you will, big A apostle, the office, you know, this this formal capacity, but in a little A apostle sense, all of us have been sent by Christ with the message of truth, the message of the gospel. And so certainly this applies to people like me as a pastor or missionaries or church planners. But all of us have been chosen. All of us have been called. All of us have been commissioned to tell others about the good news. And so let's begin at home. Speak to one another about these things, especially teach any children or grandchildren these things. Talk to your neighbors. Hey, when you go to work, speak to your coworkers or your friends or your acquaintances. Now, some of us are called to go to the ends of the earth. Most of us are not. But still, we have this job, this job to take the message of the good news uh, to others. And so our master has commanded us to do so. You think of Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. This is the command that we have been given. It doesn't matter if you're afraid to do it or not. Our master told us to do it. It doesn't matter if we're unsure what to say. Our master has told us to do this. You may not be trained like I have been, but that's fine. The spirit is in all of his people, and we've all have been given this task. 
And so these opening three ideas about Paul certainly apply to Paul, but by extension, they apply to us as well. We'll see that here in the verses uh, uh, following here uh, in the weeks to come. All right, now, <clears throat> Paul began by telling us that the gospel came from God the Father and that Jesus didn't just have to convince his Father to love us and accept us. Now, it came from the Father. But likewise, then, Paul says that this gospel message was given to us in the Old Testament. Okay, did not originate in the new. So that brings us then to verse 2, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so God promised this gospel, this good news in the Old Testament. And so the gospel message then is one of fulfillment, of promises given and promises fulfilled. The gospel message is not merely, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. It includes that, but it's more than that. It's a message of fulfillment. And so the Old Testament has laid the groundwork for the gospel message. And the New Testament, of course, is a fulfillment of those things in Jesus Christ. And so in this sense, the gospel is not new. The only thing new in the New Testament is who is doing it. We didn't know who the Messiah would be until Christ came, and we just read that in John 1. John announced who it was. And the other thing that is new is the fulfillment aspect. The promise has always been there. Um, and so as I mentioned last week, Paul makes reference to the Old Testament about 60 times here in this letter. So clearly this is an important idea for him. And so because of this then, the message of the Bible is one message. It's not one message in the Old Testament and one message in the New Testament, and those are different messages. There is one way of salvation. It's not that the people in the Old Testament were saved one way and the people in the New Testament are saved differently. We are all saved the same way. Now, I mentioned briefly about the, the importance of the word gospel here a little bit ago. The word for promise is also very significant. Paul uses this term nine times here in the letter. And so we'll see it coming back to it here uh, at different times. All right, now let's uh, look at a few of those promises that were given in the Old Testament. Again, we'll see more of this as we go along. But let's go all the way back to Genesis and chapter 3. The very first time we see the promise of the gospel is here in the garden before they are kicked out. And so in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, when God was in the process of speaking to Satan the serpent, in verse 15 it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so here is the first promise. Now you're like, well, that doesn't say a whole lot. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but a whole lot more is going to be given as we go along. But right from the beginning, we see that there's going to be a descendant of the woman, and he is going to conquer, and he is going to reconcile us to God. And if you look down at verse 21 about the tunics of skin, we have this hint that the way that's going to happen, the way the shame of the man and the woman were covered, was through the shedding of blood. And so it hints at the idea of sacrifice and, of course, what Jesus did on the cross. All right, now there's some other promises here between uh, Genesis 3 and Genesis 12, but let's turn to Genesis 12 
and uh, make reference to this one because it's so, you might say, obvious. Now, we referred to this just a couple weeks ago in, in Psalm 117, but in verse 3 here especially, at the end of the verse, it says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, you might remember from a couple weeks ago in uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. That's Genesis 12, verse 3. So uh, Paul himself says in the very first letter he wrote that the gospel promise in Genesis 12 uh, is uh, one of those that has been fulfilled now. So here are just two, briefly, two promises in the Old Covenant that uh, are fulfilled in Christ. And there are hundreds more. We'll look at one in verse 3 next week. Okay. <clears throat> Let's turn now a moment to Luke chapter 24. <clears throat> All right, now you recall in our gospel readings, lectionary readings, we read this one here just recently. And you remember here after the resurrection of Christ... Uh, and these two men are heading back home to Emmaus. Hey, Jesus meets up with them. And notice the words in verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, right, the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. And so the Old Testament speaks about Christ. If you look down at verse 44, now Jesus is with his disciples. And he says to them, these are the works which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written by the law, or in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Paul is going to help open our understanding in the book of Romans and how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. Now notice this categorization. Back in verse 27, it says Moses and the prophets. That's one way they would say the whole Old Testament. Another way is what we see here in verse 44. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Sometimes you see the word writings instead of Psalms. And there are different ways that it refers to all the Old Testament. So we're not talking about apocryphal things. We're talking about the 39 books of the Old Testament. And so in Genesis to Deuteronomy... In the prophets, which actually meant from Joshua to Esther, that's the former prophets, and then from Isaiah to Malachi, that's the latter prophets, that's what they meant by prophets. And then the Psalms would include not only the Psalms, but Job and Ecclesiastes and, and those other wisdom literature uh, books. And so in all these things, it's pointing to Christ. And so as we come back to Romans, you see Paul's point then. I have been given the task to say, look at how the Old Testament is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And we too then have been given that task. The better we understand the Old Testament, the better we will understand the gospel. Conversely, or maybe you could say simultaneously, <laughs> The better we understand the New Testament, the better we'll understand the Old Testament. 
In fact, we cannot rightly know either one without the other. Now, some have taken these words of Jesus and and really run with them and said, look, uh, the Old Testament is all about Christ and the gospel. Okay, fair enough. He says things like that there in Luke 24. But I think it's more accurate to say that uh, the um, Old Testament is all about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Old Testament is about the covenant, the covenant of grace, promised there in Genesis 3.15 and running throughout the whole Old Testament. And so the theme of the Bible is not... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him shall not perish and have everlasting life. That's not the theme of the Bible. It's an important part of it. But the theme of the Bible is, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will be with you. That is the message that was given throughout the scriptures and has been fulfilled in Christ. So let me end here then with two passages. Let's go look at Genesis 17 here briefly. The first time this language is used is here. The ideas are found before this. But in Genesis 17, as God is speaking to Abraham, he says in verse 8, note the end of the verse, I will be their God. It's the first time that idea, that theme is given. And we see it many other times. Now, if you look at Revelation 21, the Bible ends with this theme. In Revelation 21, verse 3, it says, John is speaking here, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God will be with them and be their God. So, Paul has been given this task, but by extension, so too have we. Certainly I have been as a pastor, but all of us have been given this task to bring this message of fulfillment, this message of good news. We all must serve Christ, who is our master and Lord. We have been called to do this. There are other things we are to do as Christians, but certainly a big part of it is that we are to spread this message, not only here within these walls on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week, in all of our relationships, in all of our contacts, in one way or another. And so we begin then with these thoughts here in Romans, and uh, very fundamental ones. Um, And so we'll continue then, Lord willing, next time by looking at uh, verses 3 and 4. So let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you again for your word and uh, what you have given to us here. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you have uh, given us such a, a great responsibility. We are thankful for the privilege of serving you here in this way, of um, the fact that you have called us to yourself and uh, given us uh, this, this message We are thankful, Lord, that the message has come to us that we might believe. May we not then be content with that or hoard it, as it were, but then to share it and spread it. Uh, We pray, too, that we would then um, understand it well. And uh, by doing, uh, in order to do that, uh, help us then to better understand the promises of the Old Covenant and thus how they are fulfilled in Christ. 
Uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, strengthen us to, um, to keep this job, as it were, to do it well, uh, that we might honor you and that uh, your kingdom would advance. And so we pray all these things then uh, in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.